welcome to the Pyramid Podcast, where three lads discuss all things the English football pyramid. On today's episode, we'll take a look at the return of Ivan Tony with a controversial goal as Brentford win. Is Calvin Phillips' proposed move to West Ham good for all parties? Man United have signed a CEO from Man City. Are they getting serious? And we'll take a look back at the rest of the weekend's Premier League action before reviewing the EFL, including Southampton and Leeds clawing back some points on Leeds and Ipswich, who played tonight. We'll then finish with Laura, who talked us through Yeovil's 2-0 victory against Hemel Hempstead and preview their trip to Truro midweek. I'm your host, Alex Murphy. And once again, I'm joined by Tom Gallagher and Tom Lawrence. Well, as a start of Ivan Tony, Tom, I want to come to you first on this one. So, great game, uh, 1-3-2, big kind of night for Brentford, big return for him. Uh, Ivan Tony equalised after a great goal from Forrest. But uh, just a little bit on his goal and what you thought on the whole kind of movement of the free kick. Is that cheating? Is it gamesmanship? Where's your where's your head with that? Um, I ain't got a problem with it. Not one bit. I think what Forrest have done in the um, aftermath, releasing a statement saying they're complaining to the PGMOL, I think it's very embarrassing. If you actually watch the replay, yeah, Tony does move the ball, but... Why isn't any Nottingham Forest defenders watching him do that? And even if he does move the ball a foot to the right, just take a step to the left as the wall. So it makes the difference. It's just, it for me, Ivan Tony's gaining an advantage and um, taking advantage of some terrible defending. And none of them are even looking at Tony and what he's doing. Um if they were aware of what he's doing, you either tell the referee so he moves the ball back or you just simply take a step to the left. It's not rocket science, is it? So the whole thing's just very embarrassing. And if I was a Forest fan, I'd be like head in hands thinking, what are we doing? Um, not lost that game because of that. And you've not conceded that goal because of even Tony. You conceded it because lacks defending, not concentrating um, and all of the above. So, yeah, that's my opinion on that goal. Shocking from Forrest. Yeah, obviously good uh, good result for Brentford, Loro, and a, uh, a a bit of a kind of uh, odd return for them with the Undertaker music playing. They seem to have like a light show music playing. Felt more like sort of like a, a WWE entrance or like someone's kind of returned to the boxing ring or something like that after a layoff. Just uh, what your thoughts on that were? Just quickly, you don't like that, do you? No, I didn't you... like that. See, I loved it. I loved the theatre of it. I just thought we were talking about the FA Cup a couple of weeks ago and trying to sort of drive interest in the game. Every time I watch Brentford on Sky, if they win the game, that place afterwards is an absolute theatre. There's Everyone stays behind for ages, singing songs, dancing about. It looks absolutely amazing to be a part of. And obviously they've had a bit of a um, special kind of period here with Ivan Tony being out for so long, their star player, they've struggled a little bit being near the bottom and they've probably just thought, fuck it, let's make it a positive, turn it into a little bit of atmosphere building for the fans and look, it worked, they won the game 3-2 in a cracker and he scored a free kick played very, very well and they just look a completely different team and they've got a threat like him up front so I actually really liked it, I love the the Undertaker um, comparison and I think it goes quite nicely with uh, Ivan Tony's personality as well. So I think they actually got that bang right. I think my thinking with that is, is like when you have those moments, normally it's like a build up to a moment where they're like the individual steps out, you know, like in like boxing, you got like, we, we went to the O2, didn't we watch Kel Brook and there's sort of that sort of build up to it of the montage of him training and, or if it's a comeback and then like the, his song starts playing and then he steps out in the moment with that. It's more like, 
by himself, did he, with everyone else on the pitch? It just sort of cuts to the teams coming back out. I don't, I don't know. It just didn't sit right with me. And also, it's not like a return from a long injury layoff or you know, an illness or anything like that. It's like he's been banned for betting. And um, yeah, it, it just didn't quite sit right with me. But uh, yeah, I can see why people would enjoy that. Certainly Undertaker fans like yourself. Um, just on Ivan Tony, obviously he's going to be really important, Tomo, to to Brentford to kind of staying in the Prem with where their league position is with. If he can chip in any sort of manner of the goals that he did last season, they'll be absolutely fine. We've touched on England squads before, and I think we might have even mentioned Ivan Tony before. Where do you think he'll be in that pecking order obviously you got Harry Kane with that second striker you got Ollie Watkins Callum Wilson Dom Solanke um obviously he's only come back and scored one goal but where do you see him this summer uh well there's a long way to go really is that obviously if he goes on a run now I think what have they got 16 15 16 games left um in the Premier League if he goes and scores 12 then you can see him going to the Euros definitely just because he probably he probably sort of resembles that sort of striker you want to bring on and chuck on for 20 minutes if you're losing a game because he can hold the ball up, he's big, he's strong, he'll be good on set pieces, um, he's good linking up with play. If Kane gets injured, he's probably this is going to sound ridiculous on a podcast, but he's probably the most similar to Kane out of everyone else. Um, obviously, no way near the level. But so, yeah, I can I could definitely see him going. It's just there's a lot, lot of football to be played between um, now and the summer. But like I said, if he if he goes on a run of 10 to, to 15 goals between now and the end of the season, then yeah, definitely. After this podcast, I think we should put a poll out. If you could take one striker other than Kane, obviously, to the World Cup, would it be Wilson, Watkins, Tony, Solanke? Because if you think the last World Cup we took Wilson, towards the end of the last season, it felt like Tony had secured that spot. Watkins has probably taken it over this season and Solanke's come out of the pack as a real wild card. So that might be quite an even split as to what people think. Um, and I think, I mean, at the moment, it, you feel like Callum Wilson's out of it a little bit because he's not making too much of an impact at uh, Newcastle. But Solanke's got to be in there because of his performances. Watkins had an amazing season with Villa. And I wouldn't bet against Tony scoring in a lot of games between now and the end of the season. So let's see what the results on that one is. Well, what, what would you what would your answer to that poll, Laura? Watkins. Mine would be Tony. Just, but yeah, go on. Murph, and you? I uh I would go Ollie Watkins, but I don't think your point you made there, Tomo, is a bad one at all. I, I was listening to another podcast, I think it was the Athletic Football Podcast, and they said that even Tony's hamstring for going to the Euros might be that he is the most similar to Harry Kane and you need players of different profiles. So like if you've got the Kane, obviously if Kane got injured, Tony might go as that style of player, but Tony is maybe that sort of link up, not relying on his pace, big, strong, physical, can hold the ball up, bring players in. It means that he's most similar to Kane out of those strikers. And therefore you might go for an Ollie Watkins, who's maybe can rely on his pace a bit more, get in behind, run the channels, that sort of thing. I'm sure Tony and Kane are perfectly good at doing that. And I'm sure they've both got a yard of pace as well. But um, I don't think that's a bad shout from you at all. I think that that is probably the most similar to Harry Kane we've got. And therefore that might be the reason that he doesn't go. But if you score, if you score a um, 10 goals or a dozen goals between now and the Euros, you're the striker who's going, right? Yeah. Is there a question mark maybe over Ivan Tony with regards to his 
um, profile and what Gareth Southgate usually likes because he likes players he can trust. And generally speaking, if you get on the wrong side of him, he sort of quietly shuns you off. And I know Mason Greenwood fully deserved it, but Foden was at the door for a little bit. Um, we've seen it with other players as well. So I'm just not sure that if it came down to Tony and Watkins, we're going to see Gareth Southgate go with Tony when Watkins, to me, feels like the safer option. And he's obviously a very good player as well. So I, I'd love to see Tony go, but you know, I, I feel, feel like Southgate will see him as a little bit more of a... Um, again, wild card than Watkins, who maybe is a safer pair of hands. Yeah, I don't actually agree with that. I think the 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 England squad before his ban um, last year it must have been the March squad. Um, I think he he brought in Tony, didn't he? So Tony played in that England squad just before the ban, so everyone knew he was about to get a ban. So that in my head, that was a bit of a. Southgate giving him a bit of backing before that ban. So I I wouldn't overly agree with that. But like you say, it's it's tight, isn't it, between Wilson, Solanke, like you say, and um and Tony and Watkins. So flip of a coin, really, it just depends on I think Tony would be perfect to bring on for the last 20 minutes in, in every game. If you need someone to hold the ball up and win free kicks and you're winning, or if you need someone to do that when you're losing. Um to give Kane a bit of a rest. So, but then, you know what? Sometimes they do say, don't they? Absence makes the heart grow fonder. And sometimes players get better by just not being available and not playing. So obviously Tony was good on the weekend, but let's see him do that again and again and again until the end of the season. Yeah, and also there's it's one thing Gareth Southgate calling up a player to have a look at him in a qualifier or friendly. And it's another thing taking him to a tournament uh, particularly this one where there's a lot of pressure, I would say probably the most pressure so far on him to win it because it's probably going to be his last one and maybe um, defining his legacy as the England manager, although for me, he's already been a very good one. So that's just where my question mark comes in. Not that you can't trust Ivan Tony or he's a problem player, but there's just no no doubt with Ollie Watkins whatsoever. Um, but you never know, he might be right. I'd love to see Tony go. I'd like watching him play. He's a, He's got personality on and off of the field. He scores different kinds of goals. He's underrated as a footballer. Um, he's big, he's powerful. You wouldn't want to play against him. So, yeah, I'd love to see him leading the line at the Euros. Why not? Move on, boys, to Calvin Phillips. So, Laurie, bring you in. I know you've been quite vocal about his kind of handling at Man City from Pep Guardiola, someone who was one of the first names in the team sheet for England, really, in, in tournaments gone by and said it was paramount for him to get a move. Looks like he's going to go to West Ham for the second half of the season on loan. To me, it just strikes me as a good move for all parties there. Sign him for West Ham, player off the books who's unhappy at Man City and a player who's desperate for minutes at a club with a major tournament coming up. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a good move for all involved. And I think Calvin Phillips would fit in perfectly to that West Ham midfield, whether it's um, like in the Suchet position or maybe in the DM position. But I just, I'm a little bit disappointed that it's taken this long for a move to happen because I think it was quite clear quite quickly that Pep wasn't necessarily having Calvin Phillips. There was a couple of comments he made last season and then all throughout, he only ever plays him if he absolutely has to. He'd rather play a, a youth right back at centre mid. He'd rather play anyone else other than Calvin Phillips. And it's just annoying that when he went there, he was on such cloud nine that it was probably a season after the Euros where he was so good for Southgate. He 
sort of ran his course at Leeds. He was ready for his big move to a bigger club, but one that was going to take him onto the next level and consolidate him as a proper top elite English midfielder. Now, Gareth Southgate still rates him, and luckily he's still in the England setup and he will be going in the summer if he's fit. And of course, playing for West Ham is going to help that. But I just think this move could have happened earlier. Maybe Kelvin Phillips could have tried to push it through a little bit longer, although I sympathise with the fact that these players want to give it as long as they can at the, the very top club they um they can do and try and take the most of the opportunity. But at the end of the day, probably quite similar to Henderson, he needed this move to make sure that he was going to be in that squad um, going to Germany in the summer. So I think he'll probably start for England knowing Gareth Southgate in, in the summer. In uh, six months under David Moyes isn't going to do him any, any harm there. Yeah, and Tomo, I guess the there's some other players at West Ham who this move might benefit as well with aspirations for the Euros. Obviously, Jared Bowen in and around the England squad anyway and got a chance to go in. But I think we've been quite vocal before about Ward Prowks being someone who's potentially being overlooked. If he can build a bit of a partnership in centre midfield with KP and there's some positions going for centre mid and they can demonstrate playing well together, might do his chances no harm uh, having KP at the club with him. Yeah, maybe, but... You could also sort of look at it the other way. And obviously, if KP comes in, plays really well, then it almost backs Southgate's decision to 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 continue to pick KP over James Ward-Prowse. Um, probably one to look out for, really. Uh, the, uh, with Calvin Phillips, I think he's, he's obviously quite unlucky at the, in his first year with injuries. And at that level... And when you're working with the likes of Pep, like basically the best ability is availability. And he clearly needs to be at his 110% best at all times to even get considered for the starting 11. And he's just, he's not been able to do that. I see. It's just, it's a shame really. Um, and Laura, like you said, I was kind of hoping for him to be moving January 1st so that he's already got a couple of games in his, in his locker now. But um, it seems like City, they're demanding like a six, seven million loan fee. And obviously he's got big wages. And sit, because he's quite sought after, so you've got Newcastle, Barcelona, Juventus, and now West Ham all linked with him. There is a bit of a market there. So obviously City can hold out. Um, City are in a strong position. So that's probably worked out to Calvin Phillips's disadvantage. And Phillips being the professional that he is and... When I say professional, I mean he's on big, big money and he doesn't want to kick up a stink because he wants to carry on earning that money. He's just got to bite his tongue and go along with it. But I think it's a good move for all parties and hopefully um, hopefully, he can cement his place in that West Ham team. The good thing about the West Ham decision, I think, is that they've got Europe as well. So there's loads of games for them. Um, so hopefully he gets a run of games and cements his place because he's a really valuable asset asset for that England midfield alongside Rice and obviously now Bellingham. Yeah, and I, I just think that we talk about good move for all parties. West Ham are sixth in the Premier League and they're bringing in a midfielder of Calvin Phillips quality. There must be a few teams in and around there like Liverpool, Arsenal, Tottenham, Villa, United, all thinking that's a hell of a signing for West Ham. If he's available, I'm, not, I'm quite surprised he hasn't got more takers. I know we... Um, had a chat at the start of the season as to whether um, Calvin Phillips would be someone on like the likes of Liverpool's radar, but we know what he can do when he plays. He's he was fantastic for Leeds under Bielsa, and he was brilliant for Southgate in the Euros. And the only reason that his stock's fallen a little bit is because he hasn't played, not because he's necessarily played poorly. So I think that's an amazing addition for West Ham to cement what's already a team that's challenging for Europe. 
And they, like you say, they've got Ward Prowse in midfield. They've got Suchek. They've got who's the little DM they've got in there that's been quite good since he's come in? Alvarez. Alvarez. So he could play in the eight, the four, the six. He'll definitely fit into that midfield because obviously he played at like that deep line playmaker position, that pivot for for Leeds. But for Southgate, he plays a little bit further forward with Rice holding normally. So he's got the flexibility as well. And David Moyes will find a good good way of utilising him. West Ham have improved without Declan Rice. And now they're adding someone like Calvin Phillips in who's got a brilliant range of passing. He can break up the play. He can run all day. Um, and he's got the incentive and the motivation of the Euros coming up in the summer. So an excellent addition, and hopefully we can see KP back to his best and help West Ham push on in that um, unlikely Euro charge, Europe charge. Yeah, exciting times to be a West Ham fan, isn't it? You've got Kudos, who looks like an absolute superstar. Jared Bowen's obviously a great player. Pakatar, who's amazing, albeit might go in the summer. If, if they get KP on a permanent with the midfielders who are playing well, like Prowse, um, if you can add a, a striker in the summer, we've spoke about Dom Solanke, and they're in sixth now. Exciting times to be a West Ham fan. I was just going to say with West Ham, it's always the striker, isn't it? They never seem yeah. to quite get that. Like even when they signed Seb Haller, who went on to be an unbelievable European striker, he didn't do it there. For years and years, that's been their sort of Achilles heel. And although Jared Bowen gets a lot of goals for them, and they get quite a lot of goals now from like your Ben Ramas, your Four Nails, maybe your Pakatars. Um, they could still do with that striker. Danny Ings hasn't quite done it there, has he? So if they could add in a Solanke uh, or a Calvert-Lewin type figure to start spearheading that attack even more, fair play. Build some great foundations there. They had the Italian guy as well last season, didn't they, who came in with big reputation, big goals really on the continent, did, did nothing. What was his name? So, I can't remember his name now. Skamaka. Skamaka, yeah. Yeah, nice. yeah. yeah I know. You, I know you're saying it's an exciting time to be a West Ham fan, but if you listen to like... Talk sport phone ins and stuff that like it's like 50 50. Like they they they're backing Moyes, most of them, and then some of them absolutely hate him. And it's a similar to the mm. Hodgson, um, Hodgson conversation we had the, the other day, where obviously Moyes has got a certain style of play that's not for everyone, but you can't argue that it's been successful over the last three seasons. They've got to the semi final of the I think was it the Europa League, or and then they won the Europa Conference League. Um, and now they're still in the Europa League. Now they're sixth in the league. They're they're efficient, if not easy on the eye. And obviously, it just depends on what how much you what on, on what you value, I guess, as a football fan. But the European away days, I guarantee you, make up for the fact that they're a bit efficient and a bit not that great on the eye because that's fantastic for. West Ham fans who have notoriously not been in Europe along for much of the last 30 years. Do you know what I mean? So um, interesting to see what happens with him going forward as well, because obviously his contract runs out at the end of the year or the end of the summer. We did we did speak about Palace on the last one, and I get the similarities there. It was quite sort of provocative for myself last time about uh, keeping hold of Hodgson and not maybe diving in with Cooper or Potter. And obviously, you know, we've we've spoke offline since about Vieira in charge. But I can completely understand why Palace fans in 14th place or 15th place and following from the Arsenal game would want a change. I look at that West Ham one and think, won the Conference League, knockout of Europa League, making decent sign-ins each season, albeit lost Declan Rice, sixth in the league. That might be a case of like... Grass isn't always greener if they got rid of David Moyes. What what more do West Ham fans want? Top four? No, they, yeah, they, they, know, what, you call them, they you probably call them efficient, West Ham. Go on. 
I was going to say they probably want exactly the same that's going on now, except to be easy on the eye, like a bit like Brighton. Um, yeah. But obviously Brighton haven't been as successful as, as West Ham over the last three years. I don't, I wouldn't suggest, but they, yeah, they'd probably want to be excited about going to games on the weekend. Um, but the thing is, they obviously, in December, they beat Arsenal, Man United and Tottenham playing this pragmatic style of football. Probably weren't the best teams on the pitch on the day, but they went and won those games. So it's it's a, it's a juggling act, really. Like, if you if you, you can't pick and choose to have everything, and West Ham have always been a very good team at sitting back and playing counter-attack of football. And actually, last season, if you remember rightly, they really struggled in the league. And Mikel Antonio makes this point in his podcast where he said that they made a mistake of trying to play expansive and progressive football with Skamaka. And they ended up having to return back to that counter-attacking style football because they needed to stay in the league. So, I don't know, horses for courses, isn't it? Yeah, we, we call West Ham efficient. That's because they're most trusted players and the ones that perform week in, week out are the efficient type. Like we're talking about James Ward-Prowse now, Thomas Suchek, Sue Fowl over the last few years, even Jared Bowen to an extent. The players that you'd probably um, think about being more flary over the years, like your Four Nails and your Lanzinis and your Ben Ramas, they've had to come in and out the side because they don't do it every single week and give you eights and nines every single week. So we can play them, boys, if you want. But if you're a West Ham fan... Listen, it's your club and you're entitled to your opinions, of course, on what you think about your football club. But let's be honest, European semi-finalists, European winners are now sixth in the league, signing players like Calvin Phillips. Maybe it's a longer-term project. Maybe the end goal is to put the foundations in place to be able to play good football. But let's not run before we can walk. Let's make sure we're a solid top-half European challenging team. And then maybe, with more consistent European qualification, you can attract a different type of player and you can evolve over time. But I do feel for managers like David Moyes because it's very fashionable, isn't it? We go back to the John Terry one. All the chairmen are saying, we want to play like Man City. It doesn't happen overnight. And West Ham are actually moving in a good way, in my opinion. Indeed, yeah. They had a two-all draw uh, with Sheffield United at the weekend. I think would have been disappointed not to get all three points there. Late VAR decision went against them for a penalty, which Ollie McBurney scored, but then went straight down the other end, I think, in the... 113th minute of the game or something like that and had a uh, shout for Jared Bowen to win one as well so probably two drop points for for West Ham there but Sheffield United I think uh, certainly their manager afterwards Chris Wilder thought they were good value for their point at, the, at least I didn't think um, that that final penalty decision for Bowen I didn't think that was a penalty at all I thought Bowen pulled him down on top of him if you know what I mean and, and um the player who I can't pronounce his name, Anil Ajmudic, Ajm- I can't pronounce his name, I'm really sorry, but he he quote tweeted a um, clip of it on Twitter today or yesterday and made excellent points on all regards. Just look, actually, you can see that Bowen pulled me down. So, so yeah, I, I don't okay. know where David Moyes is going with the whole I've lost faith in, um, I've lost faith in officials and VAR. It's just, Fuck off, innit? Did you think Penn at the other end, the one that was given? Um, you, look, you can see, you see them give them, you see them not. I don't like arguing against that too much. I don't really, yeah, I don't, I don't mind either way. But then I'm not, I'm not a West Ham fan or a Sheffield United fan, so obviously not being emotionally involved just helps me be a little bit laissez-faire about the whole thing. Um, I, I liked both because the ref gave the Sheffield one, didn't he? 
and then he didn't give the West Ham one, and I thought he was right on both of them. And even if he wasn't, no VAR interjection really, no, not a lot of wasted time. They were, they were. One was a penalty, one wasn't. I'm happy with that. That's how football used to be, and that's how we like it. And I agree with Chris Wilder that Sheffield United were worthy of a point. Ben Barrett and Diaz, who we didn't even realise had signed back into English football, looked really lively. And that James McAtee, is that his name? Yeah. Um, you know, like you watch Cole Palmer at Chelsea and you think you can tell he's just been in that Man City system. It's the same with that McAtee. The way he like takes the ball and moves a bit and plays it, it's exactly like that Pep school. It just stands out like a sore thumb anywhere. And obviously another um, sort of big credit to Pep Guardiola because you can just spot a player a mile off that's been coached by him or within his systems at Man City. But he looked a really good player as well, albeit not an awful lot of end product at the moment. But... Um, yeah, I agree. Good. Well, probably not a good point. They needed to win that, really, Sheffield United, but they were well worth it. Indeed. A couple of results from the Premier League chap. So, Arsenal 5, Crystal Palace 0. Um, did my argument last week of maybe keeping an hold of Roy Hodgson a little bit longer. Absolutely no good. Uh, and if rumours are to be believed, Graham Potter and uh, obviously we spoke about Steve Cooper being lined up for that job there. So, I wonder if we'll get something this week that... Uh, They've parted ways with Roy and brought someone else in. Um, I think we spoke last time out, though, that it was more about future philosophy for Palace, like wanting to be more excited and things like that. But their board might now just be thinking we need someone to actually come in and keep us up. Um, yeah. So it's they a, might It's a fine balancing act in the Premier League. It's such, a, it's such a competitive league. And we've seen time and time again, clubs like West Ham and Palace do it, where like Palace tried it with De Boer, sacked him after four games because they lost all four. Um, and that's when they, I think that's when they brought in Hodgson the first time round, wasn't it? And then they obviously tried it with Vieira, brought in Hodgson again. West Ham did it with Pellegrini, sacked or didn't extend Moyes' contract first time round, brought in Pellegrini, then had to bring Moyes back in. So it's all well and good sitting here with rose-tinted glasses and idealistic views on how you want to play football, but you need to get results and we're in a results business. And Murph, you do make good arguments the last couple weeks about Palace are on that knife edge really. And they can easily go one way, the wrong way down and then become a championship side again or a yo-yo side again. And they've been in the Prem for 10 seasons now, which is an unbelievable success really for a club that was on the verge of going out of business when in 2011 or whenever it was that Simon Jordan put them into administration. Um, yeah, interesting times. I think that's a good point. They've been in the Premier League for 10 years, but they've never got into Europe, have they? I don't think ever. And obviously they've never gone down. So that's a long time of the same kind of thing. So if nothing's changing in terms of what you're qualifying for, or the league you're playing in, or I know they don't want to go down, but literally nothing's happened at the club other than staying in the league. I can, you know, I can understand that they'd want a new manager. Interesting question: If you were going to replace Roy Hodgson as a Palace fan, what do you reckon they'd rather, Steve Cooper or Graham Potter? They would rather Steve Cooper because Graham Potter did his best work at their biggest rivals, right? I was going to say that. Is there? I know we spoke about it even on the last pod about this kind of long distance derby. Would Graham Potter have it being ex Brighton manager be a reason why Palace fans would be like, we don't want Potter? Well, it depends if they rate him highly enough. I mean, it, it plays into the thinking, doesn't it? It'd be like um, we, we all take the piss out of that that rivalry, but it's a rivalry to those fans, isn't it? So, yeah. Um, if I was if I was a Palace fan, I'd prefer Steve Cooper. 
Um, and if I was Graham Potter, I'd sit, sit on my four years left on Chelsea contract and just keep getting 12 million a year or whatever it was. Yeah, I think even without the rivalry there, I think Steve Cooper's the right horse for that course. Because at the same time, although you need, we do want to go forward and see a little bit more progression with uh, Crystal Palace, they do still need to stay up as well. And I think Graham Potter's probably a little bit more dramatic and um, extreme with his philosophies, and that could go the other way. So probably for both Palace and Graham Potter, that might not be the right fit. But Steve Cooper will go in there. They definitely won't go down, and maybe they can start to look up. So we're talking as if Hodgson's sacked. I know he's not yet, but I think hopefully the writing's on the wall with regards to Palace fans for that one. Yeah, I, I think you're right, actually. I think Potter's would probably, if he came in and was wanting to implement the style of play that he kind of built at Brighton, I'd imagine that would rely on Eze, Elise, uh, Mark Gaye, if he you know has centre-backs playing out from the back, staying in that side. I'm not sure they will stay in the summer or any of them. Um, so maybe Cooper is the right man for that job. But I would, if I was taking that job, as I touched on last week, I'd want some pretty heavy sort of like backup from the board that any money got from like SA at least say Gay, any other players who were to leave would be reinvested because otherwise you'd be left with a bit of a shell of a side there, wouldn't you, with Zaha and left. And who was the centre mid? Was it Decore who was like pulling up trees first part of the season before Christmas? Yeah. And he yeah. touched on Loro. You know, someone might come in for him as well. So suddenly you're left with not a great sort of squad or, or spine of a side there and you've got this job. Um, and I imagine Cooper and um, Potter both want their next job to be a success as any manager would. So, yeah, it'd be interesting to see who, who they go for. One more point on that is Palace always seem to have like two or three, maybe four players that impress every year and a link with big clubs. But they do quite well with keeping them. I mean, they kept, other than when he went to United for a year and a half or whatever it was, they kept Zaha for about 10 seasons all in all. And Elise signed a new contract in the summer. Do you know what I mean? It wouldn't surprise me if they ended up getting a new manager and Elise and Eze and whoever else they want to stay, Edward is still there next season. Maybe they'll have a look at Steve Cooper and think, oh, this guy knows what he's talking about. I quite like the way he's playing football. And I'm guaranteed to start every week here. Maybe we'll carry on. So one thing you would say about Steve Parrish and Palace, they have been pretty good at holding on to their better players. Um that, you know, they've got quite a lot of consistency in that team, haven't they? A lot of players that have been there a long time. I know Elise and Eze are relatively new to the squad, but like we said, Elise was supposed to be going to Chelsea for all reports in the summer and he ended up signing a new contract. So yeah, but if maybe you, they'll keep it. Yeah, if you look at Palace, they're, they're obviously a London-based club. So young professionals all love living in London. Um, they play, they pay really, really well. I remember a story. Do you remember um, Max Meyer from Schalke? They got him on a, as a yeah. free agent. They signed him on a contract for a hundred grand a week, and I've just had, and obviously he never did anything because he rarely played. But I've just had a look now. He plays in a Swiss Super League for FC Luzern, and I've never heard of them either. So he he did come with a massive reputation though, Max Meyer. He was yeah. supposed to be like the next De Bruyne, I think, or something like that at the time, and it didn't work out for him at the Eagles. Yeah, but he earned a hundred grand a week on a five-year yeah. contract and set for life. So. Yeah, the other thing as well just on that Palace is obviously one instance of that of like keeping those players but the Prem isn't like a league now where you need to sell is it as a club like I, I always come back to this point United wanted a new midfielder it was just like right we'll just go and get Michael Carrick from Tottenham and if United come in for you and they offer you 25 to 30 mil you know your player's gone but like Aston Villa they don't need to sell Dougie Louise they don't need to sell Ollie Watkins West Ham probably don't need to sell 
Jared Bowen for the money. Obviously, they, they did part with Declan Rice, but that was like a, a record fee. Um, people like Eze, Elise, these clubs don't need to like sell their assets. You know, Brentford are probably thinking we don't need to sell Ivan Tony. You know, so clubs can't just come and cherry pick those players. Obviously, sometimes the the clubs express a proper interest and the players are like say it's their desire to leave. But it's not like, you know, in January, if a club comes through your player now that you just got to take the money and bank it as a side. Might be a little bit different for like Everton now if someone comes in for Brathwaite with their FFP issues. But clubs don't need the money, do they, per se, for sign-ins? So, um, well, and, yeah, it just makes it a bit more competitive. And, well, if you look at it, in that sense, like your Crystal Palaces of this world probably pay the same wages as like an AC Milan. Yeah. So, so the reality of it is, is unless you're selling them to like the big massive clubs um, or maybe Saudi, the players are getting paid the most in the Premier League. So you want to be in the Premier League. Yeah, you do, yeah. you do see that now, don't you? Like Napoli, I think, are in for like Mangala at Forest and they're like trying to structure this deal. And you're like, Christ, Napoli were so strong. Serie A winners nearly got to the Champs League final. And it's like now they're coming to Forest like cap in hand for a player on a structured deal. I know a lot of the money he's kind of left Europe now and the Prem seems to be a strong one. And that's where you get the European Super League shouts. But um, Prem is so strong now. One final game from the Prem, just to touch on, boys. So Bournemouth uh, nil, Liverpool four. I actually thought that that was a game that Liverpool could drop some points in, being Trentless, Shabozlilus, um, Salahless. But they were absolutely ruthless in that second half. Two goals for Nunes. And Jota was that ruthless, Loro, that uh, I don't know if you've seen, but Carragher's come out yeah. and said that he could be Liverpool's greatest ever finisher with Owen, Suarez, Fowler and Salah in the mix. Yeah, that took me by surprise because, I mean, Jota does score a lot of goals for Liverpool, doesn't he? And he really impresses me in the air. He's got a brilliant leap and scores a lot of um, headed goals and gets on the end of lots of balls. And he does have an eye for goal. But, I mean, putting him into the mix with the likes of Fowler, Salah, Suarez, and then even after that, you think of like Michael Owen, Fernando Torres when he was at the club. That's a massive shout to say he's the best finisher that Liverpool have had in the Premier League era. And... No one knows Liverpool as much as Jamie Carragher, so in itself it has a little bit of credit. But for me, I think that's a little bit of a touch too far. Just recently, it's just recency bias, isn't it? Complete. Because yeah. he is a good finisher, Jota, but like hence Jota the slaughter. <laughs> but, so, but but he's he's never done massive numbers, maybe because of his injuries. Uh, there's a reason that it feels weird saying that Jota the Slotter's the best PL finisher in Liverpool's history, and that's because it is. And we know, we know as football fans, he's probably not quite in that category. I mean, Robbie Fowler had the had the um, the the label of the most natural finisher ever in the Premier League, and we know what Luis Suarez he could he could finish from just as well from thirty yards as he could from three yards. And Mohamed Salah scored more goals for Liverpool nearly than anyone now. And yeah. then, like I said, Owen. Torres, I mean, we forget how good Torres was at Liverpool as well. His yeah, finishing at Liverpool was unbelievable. Fernando Torres and Michael Owen didn't even make Jamie Carragher's pole. No, it, well, that's what I mean. But Giotto <laughs> the Slotter did. Now, maybe Jamie Carragher's been asked to try and provoke um, discussion and stuff like that. And I, I don't blame him for that. In, and look, Yotta's a very good finisher. And he's, like I said, he's really good in the air for someone who's not overly tall. And to come on to your point, Merv, Liverpool were fantastic yesterday. We said in the last pod, we, we both thought Bournemouth were good, but Liverpool better, even without Salah. And it's time for these boys, your Diaz's, your Nunez's, your Yotas, to come out of the pack and start 
um, having a meaningful effect without Mo. Well, they did that, didn't they? And Darwin Nunes and Yotta were both clinical and they took Bournemouth to the cleaners who who actually weren't even that bad Bournemouth. It was literally a case of, you know, Bournemouth played quite well, but Liverpool showed what the next level up looks like. And, you know, another stamp on their card towards being proper Premier League challengers. And um, it sounds a bit disrespectful saying that because they're like five points clear at the top at the moment. So they're very much in that title race. Jurgen Klopp seems to be sort of building momentum back with his persona as, you know, one of the t- managers of the top clubs in the league. And uh, yeah, I mean, we're nearly in February now and Liverpool are top. So we're going to have to start taking it seriously at some point. But yeah, I- I'm not sure about Jamie Carragher's uh, poll there and his suggestion of Yota the Slotter being quite that high, but certainly a good player and a good finisher and nice to see him with a brace. And all being done as well with no Trent, no Andrew Robertson, no Mo Salah, no Shabozlai, who will definitely start. And then no Endo, no Matip, no Thiago, no Simakas who'd all definitely be in the matchday squad. You know, they got young Bradley who played right back, Joe Gomez stepping out. Canate looks like an absolute beast. Him and Van Dijk have formed this partnership, which looks so strong. And obviously, Alisson is probably the best keeper in the world, if we're being honest. So that, I mean, Nunes into double figures, goals and assists, 10 goals and 10 assists this season. You know, he gets a bit of a hard rep for his finishing sometimes, but you see the way that one-touch move and he just slots it in the bottom corner for his first goal as a player in there. I just wonder whether Man City are going to start thinking, well, we're going to need them to sort of slow up at some point, Liverpool, but makes for a very interesting title race. So not great to see as a Man United fan, but good to see for the Premier League. And fair play to Jurgen Klopp. That's the difference between an elite manager and maybe Eddie Howe at Newcastle. He has a lot of players out quite often, Jurgen Klopp, and he manages to get things out of players and continue Liverpool being a winning team, particularly this season. And you just think that, the same sort of thing happens at Newcastle and it all falls apart. And that could quite easily happen at Liverpool if they weren't coached or managing and had that kind of mentality that Klopp enforces into them. So I just think, I said this earlier on when they found a way to win. I think it was at Palace, actually. Um, and they, he sort of made five changes and it completely changed the course of the game. And they won the three points that day. Fair play to Jurgen Klopp. He rubs a lot of people up the, um, the wrong way, particularly in the last few seasons. But he's doing a really, really good job, almost under the radar this season. Yeah, as you know, if I desperately need him to take like the Bayern Munich job or something like that, but that might be Xavi Alonso's. Boys, we'll move on to the championship. Obviously, Monday night football uh, tonight is Leicester versus Ipswich. So we'll obviously reflect on that on the Thursday pod. But we spoke on the last pod that that's a really good opportunity for Southampton and Leeds and the chasing pack to uh, to gain some ground. And obviously, starting with Southampton, Tomo, we thought that was a potential banana skin uh, away at Swansea. Russell Martin going back to his old stomping ground. But they were just ruthless again and took Swansea apart. Yeah. Yeah. Lightning start from Southampton. Um, two nil up after I think it was 15 minutes. Um, they really look, cause the thing is we watched the highlights and actually Swansea didn't play that badly. And then I know they were three, one up in the second half. So game state and all that Southampton probably sit in and try and keep the ball, etc. But Swansea played really well. And there's some encouraging, encouraging signs for Luke Williams, their new manager, but just Southampton just look imperious at the minute. And some of their football for the goals, like Adams, um, Che Adams linking up with Stuart Armstrong, who looks, who's, who rarely gets a mention, really, when we talk about how good Southampton are. But he's such a solid player. And at that level, probably one of the better midfielders in the league. Um, yeah, look, they, if I, 
I know Laura's the Leeds fan here. Um, so maybe I ask him this question, but if I was a Leeds fan, I'd be really worried about Southampton because they just look so good at the minute. And when you look when they when you look at their starting eleven and their bench, you just see Premier League level players everywhere. Um and I can't see them dropping the PP Cup anytime soon. No, they got FA Cup next, I think, against Watford. And I'm just like, it's just not going to happen. But, Laurie, we will bring you in on Leeds, actually. So, Leeds uh, managed to grind out the win against Preston in the end. 2-1, late penalty for it. I think quite a bit of shithousery from Preston towards the end with time wasting, even though only drawing. So, must have been satisfying and uh, pleasing to see Leeds go on and win it. Yeah, it's satisfying in that regard because I, I hate time wasting in football and it's so annoying when it's against your team, isn't it? Particularly when Preston were only drawing, like they were time wasting to get a point from Ellen Road. I mean, it must be horrible to be a Preston North End fan watching that. But it's so funny after we scored the goal, just seeing them rush to take goal kicks and put the ball back in our keeper's hands and stuff like that. Extremely satisfying, but also satisfying in the way that... You know, we've blown teams away quite a lot this season. Uh, you know, sometimes we've had the game one within 30 minutes. These are the games that keep you in the hunt and that matter at the end of the season when there's two, three minutes left on the clock and Joel Perro scores that penalty. And Patrick Bamford picked the ball up originally and I was screaming at the TV thinking, you cannot be serious. We lost a game away at Stoke earlier in the season. It was nil-nil. We had a penalty in the 80th minute and Bamford skied it and then Stoke went on to win the game. And that was a bad loss. We should have won that game. So Daniel Farker sending a note on to say, no, 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 Joel Pirro's taken it. Thank God we've got that kind of leadership at the club to make sure that those decisions are happening. And uh, very glad that we got the three points over the line yesterday, which very much keeps us in the race. Did um, I actually watched or listened to the Leeds crowd after he gave the ball to Pirro? And you could hear like the almost the giant Relief. sigh of relief from everyone in the crowd when Bamford didn't take it. But I thought it I thought it was uh was it a note from Farker, was it? I thought it was you know, sometimes a player takes the ball to try yeah. and take to take some of the um criticism from the other team. Yeah. And then gives it to another player. Was that was it not that? Well, that's what I think Bam Patrick Bamford um passed it off as being. But after the game, um Phil Hay asked Daniel Farker, he said, No, no, I sent a note on saying Joel's gonna take it. So maybe right. Bamford knew that was the case anyway. Um, or maybe he styled it out. I don't care. Yeah. Bamford's been in good form recently. He didn't score yesterday, but um, Joel Pirro had to be on that. He's he's ice cold. He's the best finisher at the club. And uh, he was always going to score when he took it. And Bamford's just not been good in those pressure positions for us, as he's already shown this season. So um, really, really important three points. And then a chance to gain some more momentum, albeit not sure what the result of Monday Night Foot is going to be. But Leeds are in midweek action, I think, against Norwich this week on Wednesday. Um, Norwich obviously beat West Brom 2-0. Uh, I think they got a point against Southampton. They've recently won away at Hull. So another one of those games that probably need three points that you then look back on against a, a decent championship outfit. Yeah, and it was a good game at Carrow Road earlier this season. We went 2-0 down and ended up winning it 3-2. Uh, Daniel Farker bought out the old 2-8 uh, two uh, two formation for the last 20 minutes of that game and it, it earned us the comeback. So um, I think there'll be goals in that game. There's been quite a lot of goals with, with Norwich fixtures this season. Obviously, the same with us. And look, Leeds still are unbeaten. Invincibles at Ellen Road. So it'll be a really tricky fixture for them. But I think they beat West Brom on the weekend, Norwich. So they're in, obviously in half-decent form. And one of those teams that can turn up and be really good or or really poor. So we'll have to be on our toes. 
Yeah, that John Rowe scored again, who we spoke before, and Josh Sargent as well. Um, I think he came in when they were in the Prem, didn't he? Uh, but he's starting to to score some goals down the Championship as well. So, interesting game that. Leeds haven't got a game in hand either. I don't know if it's just because it's like FA Cup. Yeah, FA Cup and just fitting in the fixtures. I don't mind it. But just on that John Rowe, if it's the guy that I think it is, yeah, the young lad, like he wasn't even supposed to be anywhere near the first team at the start of the season. I don't know if we've already spoken about this. but And then apparently Wagner just saw him in training and thought, Christ, he's good. And then they've stuck him into the team. And, I mean, 12 goals so far. Not bad at all, is it, for a young lad in the Championship? Difficult league. So, nice to see. And some, probably some decent money for Norwich when, ultimately, Crystal Palace take him next year to replace Eze or Elise. I was just, I was going to say, I mean, before we came onto the Championship, we were speaking about the Prem. We were speaking about um, Eze, Elise, even Diogo Yota, players that came from the Championship. Do you know what I mean? Yota was with Wolves in the Championship. Elise, Reddin. Eze, QPR. I mean, the league is so good at bringing through these players. And when you look back at like even the England teams over the last few, loads of them have come up through the Football League and, and been big players in the Championship for a number of years before going on. Um, so, yeah, just another big mark, mark of respect for a league that we all know is is obviously very, very good and talented anyway. Just to round up some of the other games from the Championship, boys. So, Sunderland lost uh, to Hull at the weekend, I think on the uh, Friday night football. And we spoke last time about there potentially being pressure on Mickey Bill ahead of that fixture and needing to to sort of relieve that by getting three points. They lost again. So, I will be very interested to see Sunderland's uh, reaction to that over the next couple of weeks. Tom, can, I, can, I, can I make a prediction? Yeah, go on. He's going to be Stephen Gerrard's assistant manager in Saudi Arabia by May. I just wonder with Sunderland now, it's like, could you bring someone in before the transfer deadline and get a player in for it? Or is that too reactionary? Are they just going to stick with him now till the summer? Do they sack him in March where it's like suddenly you're in the run up to the end of the season? It's an awful time for a new manager to be coming in and floundering already uh, for Sunderland and must be so worrying. Brom, Coventry won again at the weekend, you know, Leeds, Southampton, Leicester, Ipswich, all right up there. Must be worrying for Southampton, um, Sunderland, who are desperate to get back up to the Prem. It's just, it's just be... gone. Go I was just going to say, it's just another example of like, it's so misinformed to sack a manager who's like popular with a squad. Like they all liked, they all loved Mowbray because he was really good with the young players, gave them all a chance, all of that stuff, plays exciting football. Um, and it, obviously the same happened with John Eustace. They all, they, you could tell the Birmingham players all loved him. So sacking a manager who's well-loved by a squad and then you bring in another guy, the squads immediately are like, well, you better be just as good, if not better than the previous guy, because otherwise I'm not having you. And it feels a little bit like that. And look, Mick Bill, he always, I think I've said this a couple of times, he comes across like David Brent on The Office. He comes across a bit... Pound shop of Brendan Rogers vibe. So, yeah, Saudi assistant manager for me. Yeah, the, the the Tony Moby one for me is like the perfect example. If his name was Francesco Irioli, he'd still be at the Sunderland manager and he'd be probably getting tapped with, with big Premier League jobs. But because he's a Northern Englishman called Tony, he had to go. And now he's at Birmingham and he's doing a good job there. But I was just going to say how annoying for Sunderland fans. They're only three points off the playoffs now. And they've been in no sort of form since McBeal's come in. So if they had had a manager like Tony Mowbray, who knew the players and it was his squad and the way of his playing, and they carried on in that kind of trajectory, they'd probably be right up there. They'd probably be level. They probably have another five points and be level with West Brom in fifth. And it's just annoying, I would say, from a London point of view, that 
we we said this on our podcast. We don't even know that much about Sunderland, you, but you can see it a mile off when teams are making these stupid decisions. We had a massive disaster at Birmingham, and Sunderland looks like it's been similar. So, yeah, sorry, Macam. Hopefully, Mitfield turns it round for you, but I can see another manager being in there sooner rather than later. Really, I I think they might try and get a striker in before the end of the window. I don't know what their finances are like, whether that would need to be on loan or something like that, but they've sort of had like Joe Bellingham up front, haven't they? Obviously they've not really replaced Stewart. Um, looked like at the weekend against Hull, they played someone called Rusin, a young Ukrainian guy up front. So yeah, Alex Pritchard's played more forward. I think they're reliant on Jack Clark for their goals. So I really think they should go in and maybe it might need to be a loan from the, the Prem or if they've got a bit of money, get a striker in, try and get the goals that get them into those playoff places. But championship, you know, Hull have gone and won there. Carvalho's played well for them. All those sides we've just mentioned before, it's going to be tough for them to keep pace unless they start putting the ball in the back of the net. Boys, we move on. Um, want to touch on, Tomo, on Man United's uh, recent news. So, kind of came out of the blue a bit. Uh, David Ornstein broke the news. And that's actually one thing I want to touch on is how refreshing that is for Man United, that it did come out of the blue and has it been leaked over a number of weeks, like Man United transfer business or board news or takeover news seems to have been. Um, Omar Barada, who is the Man City Group Chief Football Operations Officer, um, has come in and taken the CEO role at Man United. And uh, sounds like a coup from what I can read. I can't admit that I'd heard too much of him before, but sounds like a very well-respected man in the footballing world. Obviously, we know about the success of the City group um, and seems like Man United might have uh, pulled one from underneath the eyes of Man City there. Yeah, and it, like you just said there, it feels such a sort of a stretch or a far cry from how we used to do things. I think um, a couple of years ago, maybe three or four years ago, we announced to the world that we'd be getting a sporting director. And after six long months, we we appointed John Murta as um, director of football or, yeah, I think it was director of football and then um, announced Darren Fletcher as some sort of... Technical director. Yeah, technical director alongside him, which so, yeah, look, it's a sign that Sir Jim Ratcliffe and Ineos Group are making their... Um, or stamping their authority on things. Um, I think it will be the first of many um, new appointments, hopefully. But from everything you read about this guy, someone who I confess I'd, I'd never even heard of before, um, but everything you read about him is highly impressive. Um, so hopefully it's a sign of things to come. And like you just said, the most I think the most impressive thing about it is that no one even, there was not one rumour about it. Nothing. And then all of a sudden, Ornstein tweets it with, he's the guy, isn't he? So as soon as he's tweeting yeah. about it, it happens. Um, and it happens. And it, and from City's point of view, it seems like they didn't want him to go. So obviously, that's a good thing. Um, I think for him personally, it's a massive challenge. And that's, that's almost the, the sort of positive thing about Man United being so poor over the last 10 years is that now it might be easier to appoint the best in class in these kind of roles because it's a massive challenge for these kind of people. And if you and if you look at um name name escapes me, Newcastle's director of football, Dan, Dan Ashworth. Ashworth. Dan Ashworth. He'd be a perfect person to come in. And and if you're Dan Ashworth, you're probably thinking, well, Man United is the biggest challenge of them all. And it's the same reason why Sir Jim Ratcliffe invested in Man United, because he's 71 years old. 
if in the next 10 years he makes Man United great again, um, then that'll be the biggest legacy that he'll, he'll ever do and something um, to remember forever. So, yeah, look, it's impressive and um, long may it continue. But obviously, just like players coming to Man United, just because he's an impressive individual doesn't mean he's going to be successful at Manchester United because we've said that about Rafael Varane, Angel Di Maria, um, Casemiro, Falcao, you can, like, Schweinsteiger, you can list and list these names. They come into a, an environment that doesn't work and it, and they're not successful. So hopefully that's not the case at board level. The CEO, and what's important, what you said there, Tomo, is that's one cog. So it's one bit of impressive news from Man United, but it needs to be backed up by a chief football officer who comes in, might be Dan Ashworth, a director of recruitment, um, where we've got people linked with that. We're talking about buying golf clubs to build a new Carrington training facility on because of how far that's fallen behind. Sir Dave Brailsford, I was a bit worried that he was going to come in. I know he's got his reputation from Team Sky Cycling and his 1% and his marginal gains, but I thought, mm, is he going to be the right person to come in and, and deal with football operations? I think Sir Clive Woodward tried it once before in football and it, it, it didn't work, but it looks like he's going to be more focusing on that side of things, sports science, data improvements. And if we get all of these people into the right levels and then you've got um Dave Brailsford, Jim Ratcliffe, Blanc who sits on the Ineos board as well having sign off of it alongside admittedly the Glazers still do have a casting vote at the minute it sets it up a bit more for success and what impresses me about this Barada as well is apparently his ethos is that it all starts with performance on the pitch because performance on the pitch leads to better sponsorship deals because you do better in Europe you attract better players who are more elite and then you give them a world-class environment to operate in that hopefully we're going to set up and that more long-term might be the answer for Man United rather than just going out and doing scattergun transfer approach, trying to sign 80, 90 million pound players in the hope that they fix something. But his ethos is very much as a player, if you don't, if you don't perform over two seasons, you can have an off season. If you don't perform for a second season, then you're out the door. We're not going to see Man United players having three, four, five years to get it right. So that really excites me very early stages, but it does excite me. Yeah, and I think you're right to be excited as a Man United fan because I think we've spoken quite a lot before and we hear people like ex-players Gary Neville coming out and saying um, you don't blame the kids if they're naughty at school. You look at the headmaster and there's been a lot of this. Is it the players on the pitch? Is it the Glazers? Well, actually, it's that kind of nucleus of football operating staff in the middle that they haven't got right. Ed Woodward, a big example for years. And once you do get that right... Um, the environment and things like that, as you alluded to with the players, can change. And whether that looks like a CEO, whether it's a director of football, whether it's a recruitment specialist, if you can use this time now where this is a bit of a dead space in the season probably for Man United to get those things right, everything else might come with it. And I know um, the introduction of your boy SJR, um, so Jim Ratcliffe's come in and, and kind of um, put these wheels in motion, but that's good. That's happened. Now the City guy's coming in and he's going to be incentivised. And to be honest with you, you talk about it being a challenge. It's a club that you can't really go wrong at now because everyone else has done so poorly. Whatever you do must be better at a team like Man United. They can't go any further down. So really exciting times. And hopefully, like you say, before the end of the season, we can see the likes of or someone in the mould of Dan Ashworth coming in and you can start to see a difference in the kind of players you're signing and the kind of... Um, where you're conducting yourselves in those negotiations. Like you say, not a late uh, fax on deadline day for Contreras and paying five million more for Fellaini than you needed to, but maybe 
um, Dave Aldstein popping up with a piece of news that no one was expecting about a player that really excites everyone. And how good would that be and refreshing for Man United? Because it has been Groundhog Day for a long time. And, you know, maybe this time next season we can push on um, from a Man United perspective. So, yeah, probably right to be excited, I would say. Yeah, just, just yeah. a note of caution, though. I do think um, everything about it is exciting, but I do think these changes and structural changes and cultural changes inevitably with a big beast like Man United, it, they will take time. So he's coming in in the summer, but it might take him two or three years to to sort of get that cultural change in motion so that the club's back challenging. But but this, this appointment, I suppose, does suggest that Sir Jim Ratcliffe is in a hurry because their takeover or their 25% investment hasn't even been ratified by the Premier League yet. And this is clearly an appointment from them straight away. So maybe they are in a rush. And these things can snowball. One good thing leads to two and that leads to four and that leads to eight. And all of a sudden, Man United are on a little run next season and teams start to fear coming to Old Trafford again. And before you know it, you're in the Champions League and you're challenging for the title again. But these things are never going to happen without that big change within the sort of football operation sector of the club, which has just been so poor for so long. So these kind of changes is exactly what we needed to see um, from a Man United perspective. So you are right. It should take time and patience may be needed. Um, but at the same time, it can't get much worse, can it? So you'd expect to see some quick wins sooner rather than later. Great point, Tomo. Um, it is going to take time. You look at the City group and we're like years away from that, aren't we? That's been like over a decade in the making for Man City with clear structure and investment. So, you know, United fans probably have got that sense of like need for instant gratification from Jim Ratcliffe's takeover and us being back competing. But it could be a number of years and certainly to get on the city level where they've got like, I think another thing exciting about this Barada is he's part of the city group. So like Girona who are doing really well in uh, La Liga, he's been part of overseeing that and they're suddenly taking La Liga by storm and got a decent set of players who've not cost lots of money and stuff like that. If we want to get back to that sort of level, get aspire to that level to be the, again, the biggest side and the best side in, in England, then that might take a while to happen. But, as you say, we're kind of at ground zero at the minute. So it's just all positive improvements yeah. from there, really. Just a note on, and it might be a little bit of a conspiracy theory I'm chucking out here, but because you, you rarely see City um, hierarchy leaving, really. Um, but there was a tweet someone posted saying that Barada's left, Jason Wilcox has left, a couple others, Joe Shields, Paul McLaren, Stuart Thompson, Steve Torpe, all these impressive sort of mid-level, high-level individuals in that city hierarchy have all kind of left over the last couple of seasons. And I wonder, I'm just wondering whether they're sort of predicting they might get relegated because of these 115 charges and they want to be elsewhere when that happens. That's a conspiracy theory for another day that maybe we shouldn't touch on, but I'm just putting it out there. It wouldn't that, surprise that's... me if all these guys that are part of a really good structure at Man City are obviously really impressive in their fields, like Sir Jason Wilcox. They can probably pluck him out of a, maybe a mid-level job at Man City and he can go and be the main man. I think he's gone to Southampton, hasn't he, Wilcox? So they're probably getting plucked off from much higher positions. And I think that's the same with the United guy, isn't it? Isn't he CFO going to be CEO? Um, they're probably looking at other clubs and getting promotions there and being picked off. And to be fair, most teams in English football have a cycle at the top. Like, Man City won't be at the top of English football forever. 
So at yeah. some point, it's going to slide down the other side and another team's going to come back up. And if you can put yourself in one of those pole positions, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but look, it's exciting, isn't it? Because you've had so much crap for so long. Yeah, it's not quite sort of Rio Ferdinand, United, a Batman, but uh, it's certainly a, a positive bit of news in what's been a pretty dour few years, especially this season. Go on. I was just going to say, you're right, because <laughs> all, all that's, we've just spoken there for 10 minutes about United being back and probably uh, making their way towards the summit of English football again. And all that's happened is David Ornstein has tweeted <laughs> something about a bloke we've never heard of. That's how bad it is and what a reflection that is on the last few years at Man United. But all the same, why not? No, Have it's true. Indeed. Boys, jumping from Man United's new CEO to League One. Uh, Leighton Orient won Bolton nil. Uh, Leighton Orient now won four out of their last five. I think the other game in that five was a draw as well. Pompey and Bolton, the last two that they have won there. Loro seem to have come from absolutely nowhere from some pretty poor form at the start about Leighton Orient. Must confess, not a side I know a great deal about um, in regards to management structure or players or anything like that. Just if you've got any insight on where that form's come from. Not really, other than the fact that, I mean, we had a look before and it's still Richie Wellens who's the manager there. He's the guy that was in at Salford and Gary Neville actually said he was, um, he regretted getting rid of him so quickly because he was obviously a good coach. And I think he might have got Leighton Orient promoted from League Two into League One. Um, Ex-United sort of youth player as well, I think. So he's been older manager and he's been in and around that Manchester scene for a while. But yeah, I mean, sometimes teams come out of the pack in League One. Yeovil did it. 10 years ago when we got to the championship and Leighton Orient probably a similar sized team. Sometimes you can ride the crest of a wave, but look, there are minus two goal difference. I've just looked whilst, been, whilst we've been on the pod for a reason as to why they're doing so well. They don't really score any goals. Um, like I said, they're on a minus goal difference. They've just had a really good run of form and sometimes the sort of confidence can, can um, snowball in that regard and you can start climbing up the table a little bit. But like you say, they're still 11 points off the playoffs. So they must have been in dire straits before this run if they've just won X amount on the bounce and uh, they're still not really anywhere near it. So, yeah, obviously things are looking up for the O's, but they're not quite uh, in the playoffs just yet. And also, if you watch the highlights of that game, if you take that game individually, that Dion Charles, who's a bit of a bagsman for Bolton this season, he missed probably two of the biggest sitters you'll see all season. And on any other day, he would score both of those and they'd win the game. So... But still impressive win. And if you go back to back against Pompey and Bolton, the two top sides in the league or of of the season, um, it's obviously massive, massive results for them. I'm really impressive. But yeah, look, those Dion Charles misses were shocking. Yeah, and that's just opened it up again at the top. Uh, Portsmouth were in a bad bit of form, but they went to Fleetwood uh, and won 1-0. Probably wouldn't have been the prettiest of... Uh, wins but um an important result Tomo for Portsmouth who, who would say the form's just not quite been there yeah uh, but if you were picking a team to play when you're on a bad run of form it would be Fleetwood I think they've lost their last five games in a row now Charlie Adams come in in his first um stint since they sat Lee Johnson and he's lost every game um watching the highlights that there wasn't much to it apart from Colby Bishop Mr. Sitter as well um but look, when you're in a bad run of form, it doesn't matter how you play. You just need to nick nick a couple of wins and then just get a little bit of momentum going and then you can start playing well again. It always used to happen with Man United. When we used to lose under Sir Alex Ferguson, we used to lose a couple on the bounce or something. And then you just see Fergie, the next couple of games, just shut up shop. 
and win a couple of games, 1-0. Play badly, stink the place out, but win. And that's the important thing. And Pom- Pompey had done that. Goal scorer there for Portsmouth, Abu Kamara on loan from Norwich. So um, looks like another exciting young talent there for Norwich. Peterborough won again. They're one point off the top now with a game in hand. So they're absolutely flying. Um, I did think that it was going to be Portsmouth, Bolton. And obviously we've spoken every pod about Derby, but they're absolutely flying through the pack now and can go clear at the top in their own right if they win their game in hand. Yeah, Peterborough doing well. The team they beat Shrewsbury have just sat their manager, Matty Taylor. Do you remember... Portsmouth left-back scored the volley from 30 yards and all the rest of it. Another example, and me and Jeff Stelling actually had a bit of back and forth on Twitter about this agreeing with each other when they sacked Steve Cottrell. Old-school manager, really, really good record at Shrewsbury. Get rid of him, bring in this new boy, Matty Taylor, who's never done anything to show his managerial prowess. And all of a sudden, they're looking over their shoulder in 19th place in the league. So, yet another example of one of these Tony Mowbray ones where the grass isn't always greener because someone's younger. Do you know what I mean? experience isn't a guarantee of success, but a youth isn't a guarantee of innovation. You can't just be young. You've got to be good as well. Have you put that from James Bond? <laughs> I did not think you'd pick up on the Ben Whishaw Q <laughs> reference there, but fair enough, you've got me. Yeah, nice touch. Uh, Lincoln drew nil-nil with Derby, as you touched on. So disappointing result for Derby, but they're still well in amongst it. Looked like they had the uh, better opportunities in the game as well. Um, so, yeah, we're still back in Warney for automatics. And boys, just briefly on League Two as well. So, Tomo, your team, Wrexham, uh, lost the Welsh Derby 1-0 against Newport. And I think an ex-Jobel player, I'm right in saying, Seb Palmer-Holden, I think we might have had him on loan for a little bit. Might have been Bristol City, Lauro. But um, Tomo, he scored a, a looping header and a great result for Newport. Yeah, a looping header is probably doing him a bit of a disservice, I'd say, because it's an absolutely unbelievable header. Um, but... I guess the game changed. The big decision of that game was the red card. I think Will Boyle, um, he got sent off for Wrexham. It was one of those ones where a centre-back knows he's going to win the ball. So he goes in doubly hard and then silly follow-through makes him catch the player. And so probably in this day and age, it is a red card and can't argue with that. But um, really good result for Newport. Obviously, they go into the game against Manchester United now, full of confidence, full of beans. Um, I don't know if they've got a midweek fixture. Um, but yeah, look, great result. And Wrexham, if they won that game, they would have gone top. So opportunity missed. See that a fair bit in footy league, actually. Teams getting chances to like leapfrog and go to the top and then get held for a point and stuff like that. I just wonder if like those occasions to go to the top sort of get to them a bit and then sides in the football league can be ruthless and they, you know, every sort of league game can be a difficult one to win. So, but I've definitely seen quite a bit of that this season. Laurie, was I right with Seb Palmer Holden? Was it Bristol City, Yeovil lad? Yeah, we had him last year. I saw him play once, so I'm not going to comment either way, but I am surprised if he's taken that jump to League Two successfully. I know he was injured for a, a long period at the start of the season. That's the first time I've seen his name crop back up. So, um, yeah, it'd be nice to see him do well. Another result from at the top of the table. So Crew went away to Barrow. Barrow have been in great form, but as a crew, uh, 1-3-1. They leapfrog Barrow into fourth, Barrow drop into fifth place. Laura, I think we touched on Crew, one of the pods, um, a few a couple of months ago, but they're obviously right in amongst it now, just a bit on their, on their recent form. Yeah, well, we've spoken about um, Lee Bell, their manager before, who none of us have really ever heard of. He's never been a manager um, before. So 
first of all, it's really impressive that he's managing to get a pretty modest crew side anywhere near the top of that league. Secondly, they played Barrow at the weekend and beat them, who have had so much sort of positive media lately. Obviously, they signed Cole Stockton last week, and they're another kind of under-the-radar club that have been winning a lot. So I've just had a look at... um, crew to see what's been going on there and what's working for them and they don't really seem to have like one standout player that's scoring 20 goals a season or anything but they have got 45 odd goals from five players and there's 16 players from crew that have scored a goal this season so that must be the bulk of their outfield players and what that says is to me they've got a team there and they can rely on um contributions from all over the park and when you've got a setup like that if someone's having an off day, someone else can come into it. So I think that's quite impressive and something that maybe Lee Bell's built there. And just looking at their top two scorers, you've got Nevitt and Baker Richardson. Both of them have sort of, I mean, Nevitt came from like um, Bootle in like the city of Liverpool. And he was, I think he was at Tramia just before. And they've sort of plucked him obviously from local and similar with Baker Richardson. So, um, and they've also got Dimitri there. He's been around for a long time. So maybe a blend of, of youth and, um, hungry players that have come from lower leagues and also a bit of experience as well. So crew, probably not a, a team that you expect to see at the top of that table, but they have sort of yo-yoed between league one and two over the years. So they're well, well ran. They know what they're looking for in terms of coaches and managers and uh, well done to Lee Bell, someone that we uh, haven't spoken too much about, but he's doing a very good job there. Yeah. They've got a chance to uh, further build on that, that form. They host Morecambe uh, midweek and there's a couple of other League 2 games just to mention. Third place Mansfield take on 24th place Sutton um, and MK Dons versus Wimbledon. So I don't quite know what that derby would be called but I think there's some history there isn't there from the old sort of Wimbledon days. Just touch on some other Football League action as well. Uh, Bolton play Cheltenham. Fifth place Barnsley take on sixth place Oxford. So a, a big game for the playoff picture there and a bit of a West Country derby as well. Bristol Rovers versus Exeter. So couple of old haunts that we've been to with Yeovil Loro, but um, that should be an interesting game as well. Boys, we won't go into it in too much detail, but just very quickly, Chelsea versus Middlesbrough and Fulham versus Liverpool uh, in the EFL Cup. Um, both the away sides got a slight one-goal advantage. Obviously, Middlesbrough beat Chelsea uh, 1-0 and Liverpool beat Fulham 2-1 at home. Just uh, predictions for who you think is going to be going through and what the final is going to be for the Carabao Cup. Tomo? Liverpool, Middlesbrough. Oh, Laura? Yeah, me too. I agree with you. I don't think that Middlesbrough will lose at Chelsea. I can see Michael Carrick getting a draw and going through there. So that'd be lovely to see if that happens. Well, you never know. Maybe. Dean Saunders said that 1-0 Middlesbrough was a poor result for them last time. So uh, hopefully they'll improve. But uh, if they do, they'll be going through to the final. Yeah, before the Liverpool game yesterday as well, I had a bit of a narrative about Salahless, Trentless, Shabozlayless, Liverpool going to Fulham, Fulham get an early goal, but they've nipped that in the bud yesterday, Liverpool. I fully expect them to go through. So that'd be interesting to uh, see that game tomorrow, Middlesbrough Chelsea for sure. And just one final bit of action to touch on. We've spoken on Le- Leicester Ipswich Monday night football. If you prefer watching Premier League football, you've got Brighton versus Wolves as well. So loads of uh, midweek action on this week. Laura, we'll just come to you to finish up. Uh, Glovers. So Obviously, playing Hemel Hempstead, lost that first game of the season, chance to turn that around uh, and did with a brace from a a new player that we brought in. So just a bit on that game. And then if you can just preview Truro for us uh, tomorrow night. Yeah, well, it was interesting because Mark Cooper, the manager, said that um, 
they were looking forward to this Hemel game because at the start of the season, first game of the season, we lost to them. Apparently, they were banging on the changing room walls, pushing the coach, all giving it massive large that Yeovil had come down and they weren't probably going to get it all their own way in this league. Um, so to be able to play them in January on 62 points, 13 points top of the um, top of the league and bringing in players like Sam Pearson just to score a brace against them. It was very, very satisfying for everyone. And it probably wasn't the best performance of the season, but it was a professional one. We got the job done. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm glad that we've uh, we've signed Sam Pearson because it gives me something new to speak about with Yeovil this week because all we ever do is win. And that's five on the bounce now. Frank Newville tweeted this week, he went, another little mini run, five wins in a row. Well, I mean, before this season, five wins in a row was unheard of probably for the last 10 years since the League One playoff campaign. So that just shows... Um, how good we've been and how good it is at Hewish Park. And then tomorrow we go down to, I think it's Bolido Park. We're playing Truro, but they play in Plymouth, which is actually quite good for Yeovil fans because obviously it's probably an hour or two closer. Um, we played there in pre-season against Plymouth Parkway, whose pitch it actually is, and it wasn't very good then, and that was in July. So I do worry probably what it's going to be like tomorrow at the end of January amidst all the storms that we're having. However, I think that the Glovers will find a way to pick up three points against Paul Watton's side. Good stuff. Thanks, Laurie. And one step closer to wrapping up that league title. Guys, that's all we've got time for. I'm going to finish up with a uh, a new segment this week, actually. Going to introduce a bit of trivia um, and we'll reveal the answer on the Thursday pod. And uh, people can either comment in on X on, on what the answer is or if you watch it on YouTube, get in the comments. But we'll take it in turns to ask a trivia question each week. Obviously, we can all take it away and have a go, but our listeners as well have a go and then we'll reveal on our Thursday pod. I'm going to start us off there have been four players who've won the Premier League whose first name is Paul. Can you name them? And we'll leave you with that one. Boys, that's all we've got time for. Pleasure as always. Be back Thursday where we will give the answer to that poll. Uh, we will preview the weekend action, including the FA Cup return and half fixture list of EFL. But pleasure as always. Cheers, chaps. Last one. One, two, three.